Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 37 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner, making the world a better place through business, Raj Sodia. Hey, Raj. Hey, Timothy. Welcome to Boston. Well, thank you. And uh, episode number 37, lucky number 37, because today we have a wonderful guest, Chris Varelis, who has written a book that I thought was just fascinating because it both gave a really good story about the financial services industry, but also he wove into its really personal aspects of it. So um, how money became dangerous and the inside story of our turbulent relationship with modern finance. Hi, Chris. Welcome. Hi, Timothy. Hi, Raj. Great to be on the show. I really like it. So thank you for having me on. Yeah. So, Chris, a little bit about you. You're a founding partner of Riverwood Capital, which is a private equity firm focused on high-growth technology companies. Um, Prior to that, uh, you worked at Solomon Brothers and Citibank as the global head of technology, media, and telecom head of the Citibank's National Investment Bank, member of the Global Operating Committee, and I love this one, and we'll get into it at some point, the cultures are for all of the city. As an investment banker, his primary focus was on M&A, including working on some of the landmark transactions. And when I read this, this made me feel really old, you know, Compact and HP, PeopleSoft and Oracle, IBM, PwC, and Lucent Fiber. As well, he serves on the Board of Trustees at the Aspen Institute, for which he's both a senior moderator and which he co-founded the Aspen Financial Leadership Program, which I think is going to be something we'll definitely get into. He sits on the board of Nextdoor, for which he serves as lead director. He's uh, an alumni of a famous business school, business school, where he got his MBA and a BA from Occidental College in L.A., Uh, where he serves on the board of trustees and leaves the investment committee. Chris, who we hear is in Cincinnati today, welcome. (laughs) Great to be here. Thank you. So I think the the first thing is um, maybe tell us a little bit about the journey to writing a book and a book that is both personal but also has a point of view on an industry. How, How did that journey happen? How did you get to that place? Well, there's really three parts. It starts coming out of college, worked at Disneyland, went to Occidental, get a job as a commercial loan officer, and I'm right in the middle of the largest undercover investigation in U.S. history, leading to the longest prison terms ever sentenced. And it was, of course, a shock. Um, And it was one of those stories that had to be written down and had to be, um, I guess, chronicled. And so I did, no, for no other reason, just to have it, because everyone said this is so interesting. And then I realized I started, I liked writing, and I would chronicle deals and stories as they happened through my 35 years of you know, working in really almost every vertical within the financial services industry. And then the third part, the real, I think, catalyst to the book was 
had so many people coming to me and saying, can you just explain this to me? Can you explain this part of the financial world? Can you explain this product? Can you explain this phenomenon? And I realized there was such a hunger for the un- to understand the financial world. As I say, it's the most important part of our lives that we know so little about. So talking to, I ended up talking to some publishers and editors, and I said, yeah, this is the world the book needs, and so you should write it. And then the personal part of it, it it's really, that was really the editors drawing me in. Because if you, if you saw the first draft, it was 800 pages, and I'm probably in 100 of them. But then as time goes on and we're, we're rewriting, it's like, you know, if you just pull yourself in personally, it makes the story really come alive. And so as the book evolved over years of writing, I just became more and more part of it because people want, they used, they, I, they used me, I think, to be in the room and in the story themselves. Because as you know, I'm, I'm most often either shocked, surprised, or screwing up, frankly, um, <laughs> almost as if they were, if, almost if they were in the room doing, you know, having that same experience. And I think people are more able to identify um, with yeah. the story. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And, you know, hats off to you because you're just a really good writer. <laughs> and, and it really comes to life had, when you add that part. <laughs> but a lot of people are like, oh, the dialogue seems so real. I'm like, because it is. I did write it down, <laughs> you know, over the 35 years. So those are real, actual quotes from people. They're not, it's not fabricated uh, drama yeah. like we see today. These, these are actually what the diamond dealer said, what Sandy Weil said, what, you know, key figures throughout the financial, you know, history have said. So yeah. that's, that, that was also, and people know me, they say like, they know, they go, yeah, you know, I always saw you walking around with a calendar and notebook taking notes. And so in every meeting I would document <laughs> who I met with, key sentences now lawyers hated it i've given a lot of depositions in my life and they're like you know when this calendar is discoverable it's like okay you know they see these 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 key (laughs) quotes but but that being said i'm i'm glad that i that i did chronicle the 35 years um and it really comes it really gives the buck as people say it gives it real pop and it gives it authenticity Yeah. We'd love to hear some of the stories that, that stood out for you. And by the way, what is the big scandal you were talking about, the biggest in U.S. history that uh, you wrote about? Uh, you know, I don't want to. I don't want. I don't want to spoil the. You know, the surprise in chapter one, but uh-huh. it it, it um, you know it basically involved a money laundering, and this is the mid '80s, right? So people aren't yet fully up to speed yet on money laundering. It's just sort of coming to be a part of. Um, you know, part of uh, the mindset of finance, because we're just learning in the 80s that, okay, yes, we know about drug operations, but they actually have to recycle the money out of their markets back to their home, right? And so um, there was literally 2,000 agents involved in Operation Polar Cap to bring down a a national money laundering, um, the biggest. Um, And it just so happened that they were my clients given to me at at Bank of America when I when I showed up and they're still serving the longest prison terms ever you know ever doled out but this this whole investigation was and, and I think what makes the story so interesting is I so wanted to believe that these these jewelry dealers were good people working hard and so because I saw them 
you know, as my clients, I wanted to protect them. I wanted to serve them. They were so personable. And the whole first chapter is about um, how the creation of the spreadsheet made us not measure character anymore. It made it because there's no, as I said, there's no column for character in a spreadsheet. We stopped measuring it. You know, before the spreadsheet, it was like, I got to know Timothy. I got to know Raj. I got to know his character. We learned, you know, you learn the five C's of credit and the fifth one is character. And they tell you that's the most important one. And then a few years later, the spreadsheet comes along and says, you know what? We can't measure that. So let's not worry about that. And then here I am, this new kid from 21 years old, fresh out of college and working at Disneyland. And I'm, I'm measuring character. I realize by how much I like someone, how personable they are, how friendly they are. And, you know, some of these money launderers turned out, you know, that I thought were friendly, jovial people, you know, turned out to be doing some, you know, some pretty awful things. Whereas other people who had these really uh, fiery language and every other word was a swear word. And, you know, I would like judge them like, Ooh, people that swear can't be, you know, must have issues. It turns out they had, you could trust them. They had a very strong character. So, so one of the things that we try to get out, I try to get out in the book is some things, some developments are appropriate. It's just, you're also losing something. So the fact that we're not measuring character in some ways is good because it takes out the human fallibility, but it's bad in other ways where, you know, what if you don't have the right credit rating in the past, but I knew your character, you know, George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life, not to date ourselves, doesn't, doesn't survive in the world of of the spreadsheet right yeah yeah well it's interesting because i suppose in your experience in private equity sort of slash venture capital you know um i suppose you have spreadsheets and you do a pretty good job with those but then ultimately you know a lot of investments come down to who's the team who's the person that we're trusting with our money here and i'm curious how your idea about character has evolved from that 21-year-old fresh out of Disney World to, you know, here I am in private equity now, you know, putting people's money at risk with these people. Um, How has that changed in terms of how you evaluate or think about character? Yeah, I would say it's it's come full circle. I will say there was a period, and that's the beauty of finance. It's like you evolve, you know, many times. You know, I would say, okay, yes, here I was, buying into the story of a friendly, jovial, wonderful personality who turned out to be doing bad things. And then, you know, the money ball, you know, Wharton money ball, everyone said like, you know, the numbers tell the story, the numbers tell the story. And then I really bought into the numbers tell the story. And then over time, I've come to realize that the difference between winning true success and, and not is really about leadership. It's really about the people. And so what I found is you're looking for great leadership and then does the, that's first and foremost, and then does the financial story, does the mission of the company and the product or the service they're trying to create, is it something that if executed by great leadership will yield a good return? So um, the evolution would be character is everything to numbers are really the most important thing to character 
in leadership, if you don't have it, you're going to fail. And so therefore you need character that's reinforced by a good business plan. And then that's, you know, not that it's not that that's anything to, you know, in the end, you, you know, you get to the end place and you're like, well, I should have probably been there from the beginning, but you know, if it was that easy, then you just, you know, show up fully yeah. formed and, and ready for yeah. the best. So take us down a little bit about that great leadership. I mean, that's a wonderful phrase. What does that mean to you? How would you define like the two or three, you know, what you would define as two or three really important characteristics of a great leader? Yeah, I'm, I'm very involved through through Aspen leadership, enlightened leadership, as we say, has become, it. it's almost my hobby. Um, you know, some people golf, some people you know, go on a boat. <laughs> I spend my time studying leadership, um, and 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 it's what I do. It's 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 hard to um, it's hard to really you know answer in a in a you know phrases that if I tried would probably sound um, you know uh, cliche. But to me, it's have you moved beyond your personal self interest for sure. Um, that's step one. Step two is, are you leading for the right reasons? And then ultimately, are you willing to, you know, sublimate your ego, your, um, the way you walk in the world for a time horizon that's measured, you know, in, in many years, if not decades, and measured by impact as opposed to your place, your your success is an output, not an input in your decision-making. You know, we have a phrase saying, you know, great leaders get people to do what needs to be done. Really great leaders get people to do it happily. And the best leaders are people that lead and the people think that it was them that got them there. And the leader is able to, you know, control their ego and not need the credit. Um, yeah. That's this is something I could go on for hours and hours. I'll stop there. But, you know, this is, we have, we have entire, you know, two year long, you know, week long seminars over two year periods to discuss this topic. So it's, yeah. it's uh, you know, through Aspen. So it's, it's, it's been quite a joy for me to, to go on this journey and, and to, and to have those personal relationships with the leaders that the fellows that are chosen to, you know, hopefully be the future leaders of the financial world is, has been a real, a real joy. Mm. Would you uh, would you share some other stories uh, from the book, uh, Chris, that illustrate the stories that are, are resonate the most are often not the ones that you think, right? There's there's like oh you think this story is going to be you know powerful and the like, and you know the one the one that like people reference because I think they they feel it's a small story, um, but it was really the one that people felt like wow what am I who am I? But I had this boss on Wall Street who divided everybody into, you know, horses, birds, and, and muffins, right? A little thing, right? And he'd say, oh, you're, you know, horses get shit done, as he would say, sorry. You know, birds hop around and have a lot of activity, but really don't, you know, do any, you know, make progress in the world. And muffins sort of sit there and take up space. And, you know, he turned to me one day and he goes, you know, like, I, I think I have you in the muffin category, right? And, you know, you're like, like, like you don't know what to say, right? And, you know, and, and I thought, wow, does this, does this mean that I, you know, should move on and, you know, pursue a new industry? And, you know, and then I realized he's, you know, he tested a lot of people with that. It wasn't like I was, you know, special, but, 
you know, it's really, do you rise up? And, you know, afterwards he said, you know, I, I think you're just a horse, you know, uh, disguising yourself as a muffin, right? So it's like, <laughs> you know, you get the you get the underdog, you know, everyone who's reading it going, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I've, I've definitely felt like a muffin or been a bird, been a bird or hoping to have been a horse. And, <laughs> you know, people really come back. To, and that's like one of those little backstories that I just thought was a bit of a, you know, bit of a throwaway. But in terms of the big stories, I mean, each, each chapter has the what I call the big story and the small sort of parallel story behind it so you get the big macro play and then you get the personal behind it so you know chapter one is about the creation of the spreadsheet and the loss of character chapter two is about partnerships going public and you're the balance sheet is separated from accountability because you know for the first time ever at solomon brothers you have these traders making these big bets where they're they get the upside but they're not you know they're not you know accountable for you know, for the downside, and I use the um, treasury scandal at Solomon to, you know, to highlight that. But, you know, once again, it, it's, it's, you're at the trading floor at Solomon, and you're just, you know, you're just getting, you know, abused by these traders over and over again. And the, and the, you know, the little, the little stories that come out there, you know, mirror the, the larger and, and then, of course, the Orange County bankruptcy for the pension crisis. And, you know, the little story there that we used is like, okay, here you have this treasurer taking property tax dollars that are used to fund the daily operations of the county. So this is like a weekly checking account. And he's basically making the largest bets on interest rate movements through derivative purchases in the world. He's the largest purchaser of derivative securities in the world. And he's a treasurer who didn't, you know, didn't even study finance with one accounting class. And then meanwhile, the county has such strict rules. Like I couldn't even buy a donut for one of the admins, you know, one of the uh, executives. So here I am, I can't buy a donut because that's against the rules for or coffee or anything, but the treasurer can make these forty billion dollar bets on interest rate movements. It's like, like, like you know, it's just, it's just indicative of you know where are the controls, where are compliance, where is regulation, where does it apply, um, and yet it completely misses the boat on what really on what really so matters. So what he was doing was legal, right? He was just saying it was crazy risk taking, but it was. Or was he? Was it he was. Legal? You know, it's technically legal, and that's the problem with regulation, right? You, how do you regulate that which has never been done before? Because no one ever imagined. It's like if you, you know, one of my favorite in in all of my, um, you know, I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people for this, and they kept referencing this one book called Once in Golconda, which I I highly recommend about the the 20s leading up to the crash. And, you know, the reason they didn't have rules limiting, you know, short selling of your own stock as an executive, because no one ever thought you would do it. So you had these executives in the 20s, you know, basically shorting their own company, right, that they were CEO of and making million, you know, making a fortune. And same thing, no one ever could have imagined that a, that a county treasurer would, would take daily operating funds and use that to make leverage bets on a derivative market over a long period of time. All the evidence was there that this was this was inappropriate, but everyone had a vested interest in the party going on. And that's the other interesting thing about the finance industry is every, you know, every bad outcome can start with a good intention or a good idea, 
but then people push it. And if there's no accountability in the system or anyone with a vested interest of being a watchdog, then it just, the, the behavior just goes on and on and on until it breaks. So yes, it was legal, but it was only legal because no one ever thought to make it not legal. And we live in a world, for better force, we live in a world where legal system, you know, we don't live in a Napoleonic code. You don't need, you don't need a law that says you can do something. You can do whatever you want as long as there's a law that says you can't. And there's can't. a lot of, yeah, yeah, as long as you can't. So that allows for innovation and liberty and freedom. But one of the key takeaways from the book is with that freedom to innovate comes ultimately it being pushed too far and breaking. That's the way our financial system is designed. And the only question is, what can we do to you know, stop that from happening? It's hard, but it's really more about who gets hurt and how do we protect those people that are ultimately hurt when it breaks. Well, interesting. In your last chapter, you have a heading called Developing Solutions is Easy, Acting on Them is Difficult. And then you make three recommendations around uh, what needs to be addressed for the banking system and the investment management industry. Um, I wonder if you'd like to just quickly review those three. And what, if anything, has changed about your view about are those the three or is there something else that's emerged for you? Yeah, for me, it's all about, it's really all about leadership at first, but but within leadership, it's what are the incentives that you've created? And it, you know, interestingly, you can't get away from compensation, but it, the whole industry has been based um, in history over the time it takes for the earth to revolve around the sun. <laughs> like, why is that the basis for how we are compensated, right? That is when you think about it every year, it was about a bonus. Like that time horizon can, is not consistent with conscious capitalism. It's not consistent with great outcomes. The difference between a good system in the finance world and the bad is really about the time horizons. And everything has mm. been... Every, everything is forcing us to shorten those time horizons. You, know, you can go down the list of, you know, time to make decisions have gone down. The lifespan of executives has gone down. Like everything is pushing us to shorter and shorter time frames. And so, you know, anything that you can do to push out the evaluation period is really critical to this industry going forward. So the one thing I would do is I would change the time horizons by which we measure success, obviously compensation. Um, you know, I heard a line earlier just last week, which I was like one of the more shocking lines, like once someone pushing, you know, one of the cryptos early, you know, says, this is your chance to get into Bernie Madoff early, oh. right? Like acknowledging, <laughs> you know, acknowledging the fantasy, but if you get in early and you get out, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be fine, right? And so like, it doesn't matter it almost doesn't matter that it's that it's a Ponzi scheme or whatever, but like if, if you get volatility and you manage it, you're fine, right? So so um, the problem is we also, you know, and, and this goes to ESG as well, you know, what are we demanding as consumers? And so no one's unfortunately demanding a longer time horizon. What really makes the financial service industry fascinating for me, it's almost like genetic geneticists 
study, you know, fleas because the life cycles are so short and they get to see the genetic mutations over, you know, over <laughs> the finance industry is where the where principle and practice are put together in a crucible. And you get to see how people react and evolve through it. And so you get to see many, many iterations. And the me- there is a measurement period. There is a measurement process, right? There is accountability. There's score, right? There's, there's yep. a score at the end of it. And you're like going, you know, I lost money, I made money, and why? You know, and, yep. and to me, I always, ask, I always ask two questions. Is there a need for this product? And do people actually understand their need and product? And it's hard to have both. And particularly when we're in a world where people don't know. Like my daughter, who's graduating from a wonderful high school, she learned everything about so many topics. You know, when we grew up, it was reading, writing, written arithmetic. She learns about wellness. She learns about the environment. She learns about so many things. What's the one area she knows nothing about and is not included in her education? Money and finance. It's the most important part of people's lives, and they don't get it. And yeah. so we have, we have a world now that's, very not, that's not educated in the world of money, going into a world of money that's becoming bigger and more complex, and they're having to navigate it. And you know, this book is an attempt to say, here are the 10 major changes in the world of finance that have gotten us to this place. And, I, and, I, and the most rewarding thing about the feedback of the book is people come back to me and say, wow, I now understand, I still have a lot to learn, but I now understand why the world of money is so, uh, I guess, scary to me and so complex. It's almost the, you know, the Occupy Wall Street movement was, was people, it was people knowing that the, the finance was a problem, but they don't yeah. know enough to articulate why. And I yeah. think this book is really an articulation of, of their fears and worries. So, Chris, ordinary people love your book and benefit by it. But uh, CNBC said about you, your book bites the hand that feeds it. So I'm, I'm curious about the response and any backlash from, from Wall Street, from the financial world uh, to what you've done. Are you telling secrets out of school here? Or what's, been the, uh, what's been the reaction? Have you been ostracized yeah, most pe- and embraced? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Quite it's quite the opposite. What's really interesting is most Wall Street people in finance said, you know, wow, I've never really thought about the industry and particularly not as expensive. They're, you know, now the, the, the financial industry has become so siloed that they're so, everyone's so focused on their silo. They don't think about the broader financial world. So the, I would say it's been 99%, you know, positive. And, you know, CNBC, you know, Andrew, Andrew Ross Sorkin loved it. And, you know, the other CNBC, uh, whoever didn't, you know, and, and, and the like. So, yeah. you know, it, it's, it, it, in each chapter, I highlight the good that the finance industry has done as well. So I think, I think, you know, as, as I said, every bad idea starts a good idea. So I highlight the good that the financial world is doing and then the core, you know, the commensurate challenge that's created by it. So I think the real, one of the real big three, four, five battles in finance going forward is going to be done with what to do with the pension industry. And so, you know, anytime you highlight um, lack of accountability and leadership in the system, you know, anytime you shine light on something, obviously the people that you're shining the light on, you know, don't like that. So that's the, you know, those are probably the most intense debates that I've gotten in with people, you know, people pushing back. 
Well, I note that you also talk a little bit in the book about the importance of culture in the financial services industry. And, um, you know, it's in a way sort, sort of tied to compensation. Um, but in your time as czar of culture at City, uh, if you look back now, you know, what worked and what didn't work there as you, you know, look in the rearview mirror and say, yeah, oh, that was an interesting experience. <laughs> yeah, I loved, um, I loved my time as and cultures are. And the way it happened was, um, and I'm really proud of this, you know, even though our group was very successful and we worked on great deals, you know, to this day, people come to me and say, wow, working in group was the best you know, experience I had. It was the only group I know that was so team oriented, so positive, long-term focused, you know, pos use positive reinforcement, not negative reinforcement. And I always get these high ratings from, from, you know, the, the, the management scores. And I always get called back to New York saying, okay, tell us how you did it. And so I tell them and they'd say, no, no, really tell us how you do this. That can't be it. And I said, no, no, that, that's it. There's no, and so I got frustrated. I said, stop asking me how I did it and then telling me my answers can't be the reason. I don't know what you're really looking for, but, you know, it really is about um, inclusivity, team orientation, long-term perspective, you know, all of those things, which, you know, they like. I said, and so I turned it around. And I said, let me ask you a different question. Let me ask you a question. Why did you make me the manager of the tech group? and then TMT, and then banking, and then you keep, they kept adding, you know, like all these positions, by the way, I didn't like switch. They just kept adding them on like, oh, you're a good manager, so take this. You, you basically gave me my early management positions because I did them more deals than anybody. That's how you select managers. You don't select them because you want them to manage, be a good, good manager. And they're like, all right, Chris, like, fine. First, I was cultures are of investment bank, then all of city, like, do your thing try to make it happen that the whole, you know, 440,000 people in a hundred more countries than McDonald's. I'm like, sure. That's, you know, I love those tasks. I'll take it on. Right. It sounds, it sounds like it's not, you know, not doable. So, you know, set up this culture committee. We had 55 changes. I think the most dramatic one was 25 to 50% of your comp change is tied to your culture score. And that was something that, um, you know, couldn't, you know, be like negotiated away. So yeah. as a result, um, you know, that really got people to think about it. It started weeding out the bad players. Um, now I will give the concern that came with it as the Solomon brother, as someone who was part of Solomon brothers, it did eliminate the characters as well. Right, so the the people that really gave the workplace some real, you know, spice, the disruptors, didn't survive that. And I'm gonna give the concern I have. I'm worried I was the one that sort of, sort of drained a lot of the Solomon Brothers disruption and innovation out of the system. So it's not that it didn't come with a cost. Yeah. Um, just to be fully balanced here. So so I thought yes, I I think these financial firms really need to focus on their mission and their culture because right now I don't think they they have it. You know, back in the day when you said Solomon Brothers or you said Goldman Sachs or you said Morgan Stanley or, you know, whatever, an image came to your head like, okay, that's they have this mission with this type of culture, this type of personality. Now I feel like they're all sort of become homogenized and are blending together. And so as a result, then that means you don't have a unique culture. And if you don't have a unique culture, then it's hard to have a, a, 
people buying into your mission and really living it as opposed to just saying, okay, what deals do they want us to get? And what do I need to do to maximize my bonus for yeah. this yeah. period of the earth going around the sun? So Chris, you know, I, I, I love your, your comments on that, your perspective. And the thing that really I find fascinating and, you know, Raj and I have been you know, part of this conscious capitalism movement for, you know, 12 plus years now. And we can go and we can show you the statistics that show why this is a better way of doing business. And so I'm curious, you know, you know, when you think about this whole issue of culture and you think about financial service industry and you just said, you know, like they've lost their way, they've become homogeneous. How do we hack our way out of that jungle? <laughs> like, where do you start to begin to say, uh, and, and do you see any 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 movement in that place of people saying, "Yeah, we really need to create different kind of culture and financial services industry," and damn, I'm going to put a stake in the ground and try to do it. You know, I don't. It, it's hard, particularly when times are good, and and we can debate whether times are good right now. I would say they're good <laughs> for those who are you know in in the investing world. It's hard to argue <laughs> against it. You know transformational change, as I found, is really hard to do when things are good. I mean, who, who makes change? You know, look at, look at all the great transformational leaders in corporate history. You know, I went through the Disney one. I went through the B of A one. I went through the, you know, through the Solomon one. You know, it always happens when, when the wolf is either out the door or in the, in the chicken house because people are willing to get on board with the change. When things are good, you know, you say, well, what are you doing? I mean, people have argued Jack Welch, GE, he did that, but, you know, in retrospect, there's, you know, you could, you could question that, but there's very few examples. And so there's, and then you add on the con, the, the challenge of scale. These, these businesses are so huge. So I'm very skeptical that the large banks, you know, can do it. I'm friends with Jane Frazier at City. I think, you know, she's a wonderful leader. I know this is a priority for her. So I know people are, you know, are on it and they're thinking about it. Um, but I think it's going to be really hard for the large banks to do it. And so it's really about the innovators, the fintechs, the, the, the young up and coming firms who are really, you know, eating the big firms from the bottom. And I think that's, you know, that's hopefully the catalyst for change. Um, but, you know, history's not been kind to large players reacting to, outside challenger and so you know i'd like to be a little more hopeful um but i think with the scale combined with success combined with um the people who can innovate i hate to say this but the people who can innovate they're not really going to you know the finance world now which is which is also you know, the best and the brightest, right? Who was, what was that book written about? It was written about, you know, the smart, the smart, smartest people in the room going, growing to Wall Street. Um, and so, yeah, sorry to be so, uh, you know, negative on this. I wish I could be more positive. In my solution on tempting is let's create enlightened leaders that exist and have them go back into the world and hopefully, you know, lead through lead through um, character, lead through a long-term vision. It, it, to me, it's like going on a diet. Like, oh, you want to lose weight? Okay, cut your calorie intake, um, control your portion size, you know, do intermittent fasting, work out, you know, do that for a couple of years and you'll lose weight and you'll be in great shape. 
right? Like, yeah. you know what to do. It's just doing it. And then so management's the same way. Like, use positive reinforcement. Have a long-term time horizon. You know, make sure that people get credit for their contribution. Stop others from defining success as to what they do best and trying to belittle what they can't do and saying that's not a contribution. Like, like I can give you the, the list of what you should do as a manager. It's yep. not, like, it's not hard, right? But it's hard to execute consistently over a long period of time. And it's really hard to do if the management of the firm you work for is not going to give you that time. One of the reasons I honestly was able to get rid of, get through it and not suffer the consequences is I happened to be pretty good at M&A and I was doing the biggest M&A deals in the industry with earning these huge fees. If that weren't the case, I don't think City would have given me Solomon would have given me the time to build the group that I wanted to build if I was having to answer to quarterly and annual um, performance yeah. standards. So Chris, zooming out to kind of the bigger picture here, you know, I feel like the finance sector has its has a purpose, obviously a higher purpose, and which is really about fueling the real economy, as people say, right? That uh, it's not about mm-hmm. you know, trading or speculating on your own accounts, but really providing the capital for different okay. kinds of uh, things to happen, whether it's high risks or venture capital, or whether it's you know the equity or whatever it might be, and I think the disconnect from that is what people see, and the the financialization of our economy, where a percentage of employment and GDP, etc., you know that's that's the finance sector has gone up dramatically, and I think for a lot of people there's a disconnect in a capitalist system where the more value you create, the more you should benefit, and that's how it works. But to a lot of people, it feels like in the financial sector, what you make is not really connected to real value being created in the world. That somehow some numbers got manipulated and some things happened and people walk away with uh, with massive amounts of compensation. I think we see that <clears throat> most starkly in the hedge fund world. And I think a lot of us have trouble understanding what is the real value being created that justifies five, 10, $15 billion a year of compensation for somebody. So what would you say to that? What what value do hedge funds add to the real economy and the real people up there? And how is that, uh, you know, what does that need to, how does that need to be reformed, if at all? Yeah, having made so much of my livelihood and living off of really creating efficient access to capital and efficient allocation of capital, and people really underestimate this, but the ability to exit, you know, in the world of M&A, I made sure that you got full value on your exit. So efficient capital markets and the official, the efficient movement of capital in the, in the, you know, in the strategic world was key. So I know, I know it's valuable. Um, and, you know, hedge funds are providing efficient markets. You can question, you know, it's hard to really grasp the value of efficiency. The, the problem I think is not that they're, get so much value for that efficiency it's the fact that efficiency is such a priority for our industry and scale and efficiency and people are reinforcing that i mean the example i use is you know you hate the fact that your community x you know bookstore whatever is going out of business but you're buying on amazon right so so it's you get you get what you reward the part that i really is troubling to me in this is in the pursuit of scale and efficiency, the individual, the financial industry is supposed to support you in you pursuing your 
happiness your life you know life liberty and the pursuit of happiness right it's it's the it's the vehicle that allows you to do that but what was so heartbreaking to me about people i've talked to with the book is when young people particularly women women in the age group of 25 to 35 say i can't live life i want to live the financial world doesn't allow it between student debt the cost of children the cost of marriage the availability of attractive you know of, of spouses that are in a financial position to be you know be married combined with i don't ever see how i'm going to get security on a short-term basis let alone a long-term basis they see the financial world failing them in every part of their life and they don't know how to overcome that and so to me, yes, people getting compensated a lot for efficiency. The problem isn't that they're, I mean, obviously you can say, okay, you know, we can have a whole conversation about income inequality, but the real problem is we're rewarding the wrong things because we're, well, not the wrong things. We're over-indexing around scale and efficiency and we're not indexing around inclusivity, access, supporting the lifelong pursuits of the, you know, of all individuals, as opposed to the, you know, the 20% of the consumer that we're looking to, you know, to, to, of the market share we really care about. And so to me, the, the real challenge of our industry is how do we shift our priorities from scale and um, complexity to uh, access and inclusivity? That's the real challenge of that's the real, if we want to provide conscious capitalism, conscious, you know, leadership has to create the systems and the incentives to do that. Um, and, and, and we're just not, we're just not. So, I mean, that, that leads on to a natural question, which is, you know, in conscious capitalism, we're looking for conscious capital. <laughs> you know, where is that patient capital right. that recognizes that, you know, this is a this is a better way of doing business, and therefore has the patience to sort of say, yeah, you can create sustainable long-term value using this model, but you know, in any one given quarter, it may not be optimizing things. Um, do you see any movement towards this idea of what you might call patient capital or more conscious capital that's looking and sort of saying, yes, long-term sustainable value, these kind of companies with these kinds of purpose, mission, and values, it's really important for us to make sure we support those. Um, and we're not giving them, you know, extra space because, you know, they're also really good businesses. <laughs> you know, this isn't philanthropy. These, yeah. we're looking for these kinds of businesses. Do you see people, do you see any movement in that space that gives you hope? Yeah, I do. I see it in the people, you know, I think this is a good, you know, ESG evolution is a good place for it, but not in the way people are talking about it and not in the way people are thinking about it. ESG, if it's compliance, it's not working. If it's part of your mission, it is. But even within that mission, it still has to be, in my opinion, part of the profit motive. Like this notion that capitalism and profit are inconsistent with ESG I think is not only wrong, but it's it's doing a disservice because right. only if you're pursuing ESG and the with consistent with profit will it work. And the example I use is you only have so much time, talent, and treasure to innovate. 
And you can direct that time, 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 talent, treasure to innovate in many different ways. If you direct it to ESG, you will have success. And not only we will make the product um, cheaper or whatever you're trying to do, but better. You know, I was visiting a company yesterday and they, you know, they had developed a way to grow, um, you know, grow food with 97% less water usage, right? Mm. And they could have directed their innovative resources to do something different, you know, figure out, you, it's, like people have this view of like, you have this unlimited source of time, talent and treasure to do everything. And you're choosing, you know, you should choose to, you know, direct it over here, even if it costs more or whatever, but you actually know you have choices. And now if you think, okay, if we, if we direct our resources here, we're not only doing better for the environment or whatever the objective is, but we're actually now more competitive. And by the way, if it really matters to you, you should be willing to pay for it. I don't think people will. I'm assuming that they're still going to choose the lowest cost, you know, item on the shelf. And so therefore the ESG has to come through the producers and their allocation of their scarce resources needs to be allocated towards the S and G, but it also has to make good business sense. And, and those two things can go together. Is it, is it, I asked this question, is it a coincidence that the vaccine developer who said, we're not going to have profit as our motive AstraZeneca, Oxford. Is it a coincidence that that's the one having problems? You know, it's not a big sample base, but it's interesting to me that the one who said profit is not our purpose is the one that's having all the issues. I just, I just, you know, like I said, you can't draw conclusion from five vaccines, yeah. you know, whatever number of vaccine makers there are, but it, you know, yeah. you see it time and time again. Well, I, so, I, as you pull on that, I mean, um, you know, I would argue that ESG, which is really being driven from the outside as a set of external standards by which we're going to benchmark different companies in terms of identifying, in essence, who are the bad actors and then setting a minimum bar that everybody's got to sort of perform to, is slightly different from the idea of a company itself internally saying, you know, People and purpose are really important to us because we think that drives profit. Now, if we do those things, you know, there's this very strong correlation with ESG metrics. But that decision to focus on purpose and people as a means of creating profit is, is sort of a very distinct difference from, you know, trying to respond to investors who are sort of saying, we want to understand what your scores are on E, S, and G. And I'm in that space, to me, it seems that the, the universal joint here is the role of the board. The role of the board in trying to say, mm -hmm. yeah, we're getting this pressure and you know, we're going to respond to the ESG world this way. But our company has a very distinct model that's integrated into our strategy of how people and purpose deliver a competitive advantage for us. So I think those two things are, 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 are related but different. And I'm curious if you see that differently from your role in the private equity world. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think your distinction is, is spot on. I, I get worried when people create these outside lists because it becomes a compliance mm -hmm. exercise. And I will yeah. tell mm -hmm. you, 
while we're very proud of our record and what we've done, and you know, we qualify pretty you know easily on the ESG because we're creating jobs. We're doing it through you know companies that you know don't create negative externalities, right? And so, you know, the fact that you know it can be done, frankly, by doing a good job you know, tells me like, okay. And if you look at it as a compliance mechanism, I go, is, are you really changing the ethos mm-hmm. of an organization or you, or you, or you just navigating around sort of these external compliance mechanisms and look at the, look at the finance industry, right? How many disclosure documents do you sign that you don't read every day? <laughs> and that's really, yes, the board has a big place. It's like, are you choosing the right leaders? Are you giving the leadership the right, um, uh, focus and guidelines and time. And because at the end of the day, the board's job, as much as we like to, you know, make these boards sound out to be so, you know, important, um, you know, there's a mythology, I think, around what, you know, the value that a board typically provides. It's basically to choose leadership and to make leadership, motivate leadership in the right way. And then, of course, be supportive to them in any way they can be in pursuing their leadership objectives. And so the real key board is choose enlightened leaders and then tell them, yes, we are going to back you to invest in these various, you know, even keeping ESG aside, we're going to have you invest in a business which has a long-term time horizon. You know, everyone, this this profit maximization is bad. Profit maximization is bad if the measurement period is very, very short. If it's quarterly, which it's become, quarterly reporting has, you know, has been a real negative for, um, you know, for these companies. But if you if you make the time horizon long enough, you have people taking into account, you know, of course, you know, we talk about brand, right? You can't build a brand in a quarter, right? So we know you need to build a brand over a long period of time. Why can't you have the same time horizons around, you know, other variables as well, knowing it's going to you know, be in the best interest. So you need to make employee, you need to take care of your employees. You need to make them feel a part of something. You need to, um, you know, you need to do these things as a leader to be successful. And so uh, I, I, I think if a board does that um, and they got to, you know, they have to give the latitude to the executive to say, okay, yes, if we invest in this, not only will it be more profitable, but it'll be a better product. It'll be better for the environment. It'll be better because those two things can be consistent, but you have yeah. to you have to have the leadership willing to take on that investment. Yeah. And, and I think we, you have to break that trade off mindset, right? People think there's no free lunch and there's always a trade off. But if you yeah. look for trade offs, you'll always find them. But if you reject them, and if you're coming from a place of inspiration and not obligation, right? You're not saying ESG and I, I, I must comply. So if I'm if I'm motivated, it's a much more powerful fuel is inspiration. And if I'm then trying to achieve these seemingly irreconcilable or, or trade-off types of things, more often than not, I would say overwhelmingly, you know, that's when human creativity gets engaged at its highest level. And we are able to come up with that win-win, right? We are simultaneously, we are better for the environment and we are better for uh, the customer, right, in terms of functionality, et cetera. Uh, all around, all the stakeholders can win. So I think keeping it at that level of inspiration and rejecting this idea that all of this has to come with lower performance. We've got lots of data and evidence that says, no, we don't have to make that trade-off. But so, you know, making money is important and profits are a social good. 
but it matters how we make the money. And we can do it in a way, as you said, with positive externalities all around. And I think that's a, that's a very encouraging try. I was just talking, as I said to you earlier, with a, a PE person from Norway who runs a private equity from there. And, and their lens is that they, they only invest in businesses that have positive externalities. They cannot have any negative externalities. And so it's one of the highest performing portfolios in the world, you know, according to him. And there's a Harvard case written about them. So I think we're starting to learn that, uh, you know, we need to shift our mental models around these things. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that's why I, I think it's unhealthy to say there's a trade-off. We need to stop that mythology and start moving away because it's not, it's not helping um, you know, it's not helping anyone. And then the other thing I push back on is what has given us the ability to even have this discussion, right? I mean, the profit motive has, you think about who is, who are the best environmentalists, who are the systems and the, the societies that have been able to, to make the most progress. It's, it's, you know, it's the ones that, you know, have had a capitalist-based profit motivated. Because um, at the end of the day, there's nothing, there's nothing that has, proven to be effective in terms of focus and having people directed towards um, creating something that the world wants. And once you create different um, competing in incentives or competing missions, it, it, it leads to, it leads to chaos. Um, and so we need to accept that um, the profit capitalism does that effectively. And so rather than saying they're competing, say, how do we have ESG be a focus within that very successful model. Yeah. Well, I, I want to sort of be a little bit optimistic about what financial services can be. In your book, you have a wonderful story about your Uncle John and, um, mm -hmm. and banking as it could be, or maybe even should be. And I wonder if you want to share that story as we, we, we start to move towards wrapping up here on a positive note. <laughs> Kind of positive. Yes, you know, my, my parents are Greek immigrants um, and very lively characters, um, even for Greeks. And my uncle was particularly one. And, you know, it's an amazing story. You come, you come to America, you don't know the language, you have nothing. Um, and, you know, what's interesting is, you know, I always say, too, like, there's always these mythologies, right? Like, we were the land, you know, give us, you're tired, you're hungry, you're you know, my mother tried to come to the United States and she was turned away, you know, at, at Ellis Island and she had to go to Canada. So it's like, you know, it's like, it's not like there's any, it's not like there was anything like, you know, their classic immigrant story. And, you know, my uncle created a bank, um, was very involved in real estate, became, you know, extremely successful, um, built a bank, still exists, Patriot Savings in Connecticut. And, you know, he was the, he was the, you know, founder, creator, executive. And, you know, I go to visit him. He's, you know, in his 80s. And I stopped by. I always, you know, would stop in to say hi because he always had, no matter what, when I, whenever I saw him, he always had these tidbits of, of, you know, of insights that I always got from him. So I go to visit him and I go up to the executive floor and I go, oh, I'm looking for John Cantus, um, my uncle. And I said, oh, no, he's on the ground floor. And I'm like, he's on the ground floor. Like, the ground floor is the, branch the retail branch and he goes yeah, yeah that's where he is so i go really so i go down to visit him and there he is his desk is at the front door sitting there and he's got this nameplate that says you know founder on it 
and he's like greeting people as they come in saying oh welcome to patriot savings i'm you know so glad how can i help you what would you like to do today right and i go like uncle john what are you doing and he goes well you know i'm i'm sort of i'm obviously retiring and i i can do whatever i want i said you know can i sit in the retail head you know top the the headquarter retail branch and you know greet people and they of course said yes and so here you have the founder you know chairman whatever title almost like you know i'll use the walmart reader analogy right he's greeting people in and and you know saying welcome and how can i help you and and he says this is where i want to be this is where the customers are this is what personalizes it and i think what made our bank different and it was stunning to me right i mean i was like wow i almost want to say you know and i hate to admit this about myself but i almost my reaction was and this is i think what makes also the book helpful is you know i give my authentic reactions even though they aren't necessarily the most kind you know i was almost like what are you doing you're like you're you're like greeting people at a retail branch like no but then i thought about it, i said you know this is such a it's such a beautiful thing right it's it's a it's a reminder of what really matters and what's important. And for him, it was connecting to people on an individual basis. It wasn't sitting on the executive floor in his final years doing God knows what, right? It was, yeah. I want to meet the people and be with the people and, and help them. And I thought, what a beautiful, wonderful, you know, story of, you know, who knows how we make that, do that at scale or get that, you know, integrated into the financial services need, but that's what we ask our, you know, that's what we should ask leaders, you know, how are they doing that? How are they, how are they bringing banking to the people to make their lives better, to help them reach their goals and their objectives? Um, yeah. How are they doing that? That's a beautiful example of, you know, character. You, know, you talked earlier about great leadership yeah. and character. And in a sense, you know, it runs in the family, Chris. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Um, as you look yeah. forward, uh, you know, maybe last question. Um, you know, what's got you excited? Uh, what gets your juices going these days as you look over the next few years for yourself and, and what's really interesting to you? Well, I really want to see how things play out. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to make this sound like a, you know, Netflix drama series that I'm excited to watch, but there are so many fascinating <laughs> tensions that we're going to get to see how they turn out, you know, in, you know, if, whether you live, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you're going to get to see some big, small, some grand experiments played out. And, you know, I'm really, I'm really curious. You know, I, I feel like I need, you know, this is part of my mission in the book and Aspen and everything. This is done to to try to influence this and, you know, maybe futile, but I feel like I have to at least take a take a swing at it. I mean, the fact that pension accounting and pension accountability has no, you know, really doesn't, you know, there's no accountability in the system. You know, the fact that we can continue, even though we know we're issuing obligations that we don't have funded, you know, when does that, you know, when does that break? How does it break? You know, people ask me like, okay, I get it. I should be nervous, but you know, what's going to happen and how and why? And I say, if anyone, one thing that you learn, if you studied, you know, 35 years for me now, we studied financing for you is if you think you can predict the timing, you know, how many quotes do I have to give you, you know, the 
Alan Greenspan in 1997 saying, you know, this is a time of irrational exuberance. Well, he was right. He was just three years early, right? Or, you know, Chuck Prince saying the music is playing, so we're going to get up and dance, right? You know, and then it just, you know, when he said that, that was when the music stopped, right? It's like, like no one, no one knows the timing and no one knows how it's going to play out. But the one thing that's certain and this is, you know, this is, sorry, it almost sounds, uh, when you say what I'm interested in, we're seeing something play out that is, has a complexity and a size um, that we have never, you know, that we've never seen before, you know, in history. And as Einstein said, one of my favorite quotes is the area of knowledge increases, so does the circumference of darkness. And the lack of understanding and the freedom to create bigger and more is coming up against the you know the the wall of understanding and the ability to manage that and it's going to be i think it's just going to be fascinating to see how our quasi mmt experiment if not full mmt experiment experiment you know how it ends um and then what's the fallout for that going to be so i'm um, uh, sorry to pick you know, what are you excited about? You know, I hope it doesn't sound too morbid that I'm excited to see how these things play out. But, but I'm excited to I, see how the car accident like, happens like, and whether there's... Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 um, and so, um, you know, I'm excited, frankly, to, you know, you're doing your part through this, you know, so thank you for that. I mean, you know, luck, luckily there are, there are um, a group that, that is trying to, have the conversation about what is really going on and how do we um, how do we manage it so that really we're trying to protect the ultimate people that will be harmed by the fallout and that's that's the I think the most troubling thing about financial crises is it ends up impacting those that one are least able to tolerate it and two really never understood and probably didn't necessarily, you know, probably didn't participate in the upside of the risks that came with creating the challenge. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, thank you for what you're doing, you know, through conscious capitalists and, and, you know, I'm trying to, trying to do my part as well. So the good news is, or the good, I guess the positive is like, we definitely have a challenge that we can identify, you know, we have a purpose, we have a, you know, something that, that I think is the biggest challenge that people aren't focused upon. Chris, thank you for that very thorough walk through the challenge, the opportunity, and maybe even the coming crisis in our financial services industry. And thank you, listeners, for listening in. And if you've enjoyed today's podcast, then please, on whatever channel you're listening on, hit the subscribe button. And if you want to leave Raj and I a note, please go over to Apple Podcast or Spotify and you know, give us a rating and leave a comment there or go to our website, theconsciouscapitalists.com where you can leave Raj and I a note. And Chris, you've covered a lot of territory, really appreciate it enormously. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thank you, Carla Viegas, our producer, who each week gets this introduction and out to all of you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.